Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a sage publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Tim Callahan. Senior Vice President and Global Chief Information Security Officer of AFLAC. Our discussion will revolve around cybersecurity best practices, especially in the area of post-breach management. But before we get into those details, I'd like to share a few highlights of Tim's very impressive career. He has spent 23 years in the Air Force specializing in explosive ordnance disposal. Tim is a highly experienced chief information security officer with a demonstrated history of working in the financial services and insurance sector, building leading cybersecurity programs. He is a very distinguished member of the cybersecurity community nationally as well as globally. Tim has served as board chair, board member, board advisor, conference keynote speaker and panelist. So it's really an honor and a privilege to have Tim join this podcast. Tim, welcome. Please share with listeners some highlights of your professional journey, because surely I did not do justice to it. Share with them how this journey of yours has shaped your views of cybersecurity and cyber risk management. Thank you, Dave. I had the privilege to work, as you point out, in, in so many parts of with the military as, as well as in, in the civilian world and in financial institutions and obviously most recently an insurance company with a heavy financial sector presence. My career after the military started at SunTrust and I had the privilege to become part of a new program, SunTrust Bank decided to take all the independent banks. There were many small SunTrust banks at the time around the Southeast, and they consolidated into one big bank. And that showed the need or displayed the need for a corporate security program. And so I I was able to come in and start my career in information security, leading first the program office, and then eventually a group access management support services within the security group, continuing to lead the program office. And then that led me from there, I went to a bank in Connecticut, People's Bank at the time. Now it's People's United Bank, which has recently been acquired by M&T. But that was a, a situation where they had started on a very aggressive strategy. And in order to meet the regulatory requirements, they needed to get technology risk and and security in order to satisfy the regulators. 
And so we were on a very tight timeline to accomplish that. And it really was a grounds up building of a program of the scale commensurate with the size of the financial organization they wanted to be. And that they were fine if they stayed a small kind of community bank, but as they were branching out into other states and, and growing, the regulators was just concerned that, that their program would not meet that. So we, we accomplished that. I, I wound up coming back to SunTrust for about four years, but then in, in 2014, I was recruited to AFLAC. It was interesting that the leadership at AFLAC, the board at AFLAC, had gotten very concerned about the cyber threat turning to the insurance industry. And there was really no one in the company that could help that time kind of articulate that risk and then what we knew to do about it. So I was brought in to do that. We I started really in the U.S. subsidiary, AFLAC U.S., and then in 2016, established a global security program and had began building out our entire company, both all the subsidiaries, the different lines of business, and brought them into that corporate program. I really started seeing, and we did, in fact, see that a lot of the the controls that we needed because the cyber criminals were turning their attention to insurance. A lot of the controls were very similar to what we needed in banking. So we actually adopted the NIST cybersecurity framework, but then infused the FFIC requirements into that in order to have a bit more tangible measure of a program than just the framework itself. And that's worked out very, very well for us. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. So, Tim, during your talk in my master's level class on cybersecurity readiness at Duke University, you made a very poignant statement. You said, if you can plan for the zombie apocalypse, you can probably face just about everything. Please share with the listeners the key elements of an effective crisis management framework and related best practices. Yeah, so the zombie apocalypse thing was, did not originate with me back, oh gosh, probably 2011, 2012. The CDC came out with this zombie apocalypse plan. And it was kind of a tongue in cheek, humorous way uh-huh, to uh-huh. just illustrate that if you plan for the zombie apocalypse, you can, you can handle just about anything. So we adopted from that AFLAC probably beginning in 2016-ish, 2017, we adopted an all-hazards approach. And the all-hazards approach was we write a master crisis management plan that can cover anything, the zombie apocalypse to a data center loss, to a, a cyber event, a pandemic, coincidentally. We addressed it in this plan. And then we have particular annexes for the major kinds of things. So the master plan covers the fundamentals of how you gather together, who you gather together, what's your alternatives, if our communications are out, those kinds of things. But then you have particular plans. And part of it was us adopting a model that says we can work from anywhere. So in the past, we had like many companies had a a model where you would use disaster recovery trailers, so to speak. And as we started pushing on that plan, it really crumbled pretty quickly because 
just the logistics of getting in enough trailers for the seats that we would need, the the fact that getting power and internet to those trailers could be very difficult in the scenarios that we talked about. So we adopted the work from anywhere model and began building out the security infrastructure for that and the technology infrastructure for that. And lo and behold, we put it to the test in March of 2020 when we had to evacuate all of our buildings due to the pandemic. Now, looking back, was that the right thing to do? I I don't think anybody would say yes or no to that. (laughs) But we did. We immediately put within the U.S. right at 6,000 people from an office to working from home. And I'm not saying we didn't have any hiccups, but the fact that we planned for that would help us get through that quickly, where many companies had to kind of architect it on the fly. So we formed that. We formed up addressing. We went through scenarios. We had global executive response exercise. We had formal plans around who, what part each would play. And again, most companies have that kind of of thing. But the fact that we had it, we practiced it, and then we kind of fought like we trained, so to speak, in order to to execute that. We've been very fortunate. We've not had any major global cyber security events. We have had cybersecurity events. We, we were very dependent on third parties. And when they have an event, we have to respond as well. So the structure has been very, very good in prepping us for, for these kinds of scenarios. We also think it's very important that we have a trained in-house team on initial measures looking towards the post-recovery. So as we're responding to events, how we preserve the environment so that we can later do forensics is very important. As you pointed out, I was bomb tech in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and oftentimes we would get sideways with our, our law enforcement partners because they wanted us to preserve evidence. Obviously, we just wanted to get rid of the hazard. But you have to th- kind of think through that. The more strategic thing for us bomb techs was if this was a terrorist organization, a criminal organization, we had a vested interest in helping our law enforcement partners find out who did it so that they wouldn't do it again, right? And so that's a very similar kind of correlation. Our forensics teams have to, and our response teams have to be able to think through that. And we have plans for that. We've got very good relationships with our legal counsel in-house, as well as we exercise with outside legal services. We've got a good partnership with our local FBI, Secret Service. We attend Department of Treasury briefings and a strong member in the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So all of this forms up the post-recovery, right? You can't do a good job in post-recovery if you don't do a good job in the response process and in those stages leading up to that. Great. I'd like to reiterate a couple of things you said, one of which is to be in lockstep with the chief legal counsel and establish a good partnership with law enforcement. Oftentimes, when I'm asked for advice by organizations on how best to build and manage their cybersecurity strategy. I emphasize the importance of closely working with the legal team. Involving legal in cybersecurity strategy formulation, execution planning, and review are very good practices. Get in touch with the legal team and discuss with them what are the likely pitfalls or consequences 
of different types of breaches. And what would the jury and the judge like to hear and see by way of evidence of due diligence? Did the organization comply with all the regulatory requirements and follow through with the recommended cybersecurity best practices? Ultimately, it is the legal team that you have to go to for help for defending the organization in the court of law. So why not involve them from the get-go? Developing a strong and sustained partnership with legal is definitely a critical success factor. So thanks for sharing that, Tim. Moving along, when it comes to dealing with ransomware attacks, as we all know, these attacks are rampant and many organizations are underprepared to deal with such attacks. What advice do you have for your peers in other organizations? Yeah, so when you take ransomware, and as you say, it, it is rampant, we've been affected less directly in, in, in internal. We did have a couple of years back, one of our small subsidiaries affected, and, and we, we recovered from that fine. But we're, we've had several instances where a critical third party was affected and actually shut down services. And we, we had to recover from that, right? Not necessarily from the malware that caused the ransomware, because that was in the third party, but obviously the impact on our services. So it's very important when you think through a ransomware attack, you think through all the vectors that you can be affected, and then you plan for that, right? So it's always a little bit different than other business disruptions when you think through it, right? So from a true business disruption, we have business continuity plans and we invoke those those kinds of things. We have workarounds. There's always a discussion in the in the workarounds about is this effective? In other words, should we go to manual process from automated process or should we just concentrate on getting recovered? Because if we go to manual process, you're introducing human error and, and other kinds of things. So these are all the discussions you have to kind of think through during a response. One thing in any ransomware response, you're going to slow down a little bit because you've really got to determine where the ransomware is, where the malware is that caused that event to make sure that you don't recover in a way that you reintroduce that same infection into the new, the new area. And so you have to kind of bring forensics up to the front to some degree in a ransomware event, whereas in other kinds of events, you, you don't necessarily have to do that. So that's a consideration unique to ransomware. I do think in ransomware, I use the term ransomware, but any cyber extortion type event, whether it's DDoS attack, a destructive attack for extortion, whatever it is, you really have to think through and have, I, I think, a very well-articulated policy at your highest company level. If you're a public company, it, it ought to be discussed with the board. You shouldn't surprise your board with a whether we're paying or, or, or not. I mean, it's something that should be discussed at the board level. It definitely has to have crossed the business buy-in at the executive level. So again, with a, a ransomware event, you're, you're going to have these other factors that you may not in, a, in other type of cyber events. So those are some of the conditional, the, the considerations. I think working with law enforcement, again, is very important in ransomware, bringing them early. We've seen in other companies and, and major ransomware events, they, the law, federal law enforcement was able to be pretty helpful and giving intel and giving advice 
And then in some cases, actually recovering when one company paid the ransom, they were able to recover a good portion of it. So I think, again, in this type of incidents, you, you really have to think through differently your, your response. The post-incident duration, again, is, is going to be a little more time-consuming than, than maybe other type of events because you want to make sure that everything is clean, everything, that to the extent you can, you've, you've gathered all the indicators of compromise, that you've ran those through your systems and make sure that you're not, you don't have any latent infection there or hid in non-allocated space or, or the, the typical things that you go through. Also, I do think it's very important that you exercise with different scenarios before the event happens and you put yourself in a continuous learning and improvement. I mean, when we generally have our exercise, we bring in third parties, but we also call on law enforcement, our intelligence partners, really part of open source intelligence, intelligence we pay for, uh, intelligence through FSI SAC. All of these things help us form that scenario. So we're getting realistic play and to the extent possible can be prepared for that. That's that's. Great insight. Thank you so much for sharing. I'd like to add something to what you shared. And this comes from a discussion that I had with a former FBI professional who worked in, who still works in the cybersecurity space. And I'm going to quote him here. He says, one of the first things that these threat actors do when they get into the environment is go looking for the backups, because those are going to be the first, some of the first systems they hit you with ransomware attacks. And in fact, that was validated by another expert who said that it's not good enough to just have backups and they are properly secured both offline and online, but it is equally important to have read-only backups. Would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I I think it's important. For years, I've led the business continuity programs and pretty much every company I've worked for, but for years, we were trying to accelerate backups. I mean, that was the our assurance, right? So you have your recovery time of that objective, your recovery point objective. And generally, the requirements for recovery point were minutes, right? So in order to do that, you had to do very rapid backup. And thinking through the ransom scenario, that can really hurt you. Even if you have, you don't have a criminal that's penetrated and been able to move laterally across your environment and get into your backups. If you're replicating very quickly, then you could actually replicate the ransomware encryption into in, into your backup. So it really caused us to take a pause and, and think through what, what our strategy ought to be. Best practices here, as your FBI friend pointed out, is definitely to have read-only backups. It's definitely important to air gap your backup, or at least have some preservation methodology to air gap your your backup. So there is some definitive action that that it takes. And different companies with different technologies will will do that in different ways. In fact, we have two major subsidiaries that just because of their configuration and and, and how they do things, do it two different ways. So I, I do think that's a, a, a very important consideration that's different than traditional crisis disaster situations. Okay, thanks for sharing that. Another thing that I'd like to share with listeners is the evolution of the ransomware extortion methods. 
from single extortion practices where they encrypt systems and data to double extortion, meaning stealing your data before encrypting it. Then there is triple extortion when the perpetrators launch a denial of service attack so the business can no longer function. And the latest is the quadruple extortion where the ransomware attackers contact the customers of the breached organization and ask them to put pressure on the organization to pay up. Given the variety of ways in which the ransomware attackers put pressure on the organization and the unfortunate reality that it is hard to keep up with the evolving attacks and techniques, it must be a very unnerving feeling that if your organization gets attacked, if your organization gets compromised, the battle against the ransomware attackers is hard to win because they have the data and you have to depend on them, live up to their promise that if the ransom is paid, they won't share the stolen data or they won't do anything more with it. That's a very difficult kind of a situation, isn't it? Most certainly. And I think when you go to the triple extortion, <laughs> you're, you're just having a bad day. I mean, <laughs> other way about it. Uh, I, I, we have thought through that scenario in our exercises. Uh-huh. And I think what happens is at some point you see a traditional cyber technical response to a true public relations response or sharing. So I know that our number one concern is always protecting our customers. And we make all of our decisions based on that because our customers have trusted us with their information. They trust us. In fact, our our CEO often says that what we sell at Aflac is we sell a promise, right? We sell a promise to be there for our customers when they need us most, and we're going to fulfill that promise. And that extends across our company into our cybersecurity program because we, our employees, see the importance of protecting our customers and our customer information. So if you got to the point that criminals were reaching out to our customers and urging our customers to put pressure on us, I think, quite honestly, I think we would have failed in our response because if we believe that our data has been compromised to the point that a criminal could identify our customers, then we have to tell our customers, look, this is what's going on. We're under a criminal attack. Here's the measures that you can take to protect yourself. Here's what we're going to do for you. Here's how we're going to battle it. And and you have a very honest discussion at that point, a very honest release. I think our prevention measures, I think, are at definitely at industry standards, if not a bit, bit beyond, but we can never count on not being compromised. So I, I do think you think through all of those scenarios and you address them that way. I do know that we've suffered DDoS attacks for extortion. We've gone, come out okay on that, never have paid on that. We've, as I pointed out, we had one of our subsidiaries suffer ransomware. We didn't pay. We gutted through recovery and was able to restore the business in, in very good time. But, but I do think that you, when you prepare, you have to think through and plan for the worst case and then have a scenario and have thought through how we're going to respond as a company. It's one of those things you want to be prepared for the worst and hope you never see the worst, but you still have to be prepared for it, right? 
To do that, you have to have all components of your company singing off a single sheet. So our communications team, our corporate communications, PR folks, our marketing team, our legal team, our technology team, our security team are all led by our crisis management leader. We have to have statements, prescribed statements, kind of at least drafted in our plan, right? That can quickly be tailored to particular incidents and released. We have to exercise and have, again, a partnership with our law enforcement. All of these things are your best defense against against the more disastrous outcome. If a company, I, I think the public and our customers would have a lot of sympathy for a company if if we're doing the right thing, we've done the right thing, and we're communicating honestly, openly, transparently. They they'll realize and. and We've seen this in other companies. The customers realize that we're a victim too, and and we're doing our very best to protect them. Thanks for sharing. You're spot on. I think a really honest, candid, transparent approach that reflects a genuine attempt by the organization to be deliberate and comprehensive in their cybersecurity strategy is key. And it's great to hear that there is such strong support from the CEO level in your organization. I love what you said. It's about selling a promise that we truly care. And if we don't live up to it, then what's the point? And that spirit of caring percolates right through and includes protecting customer data. In fact, I want to take this opportunity to also share a quote which will resonate with you. Here's what a subject matter expert had to say about dealing with ransomware. Ransomware is more than just a CISO problem. It's a corporate problem. You need the executives, you need the board, you need the management, and you need the employees to all be in unison in how you go about protecting your company. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you saying. And it also aligns very well with one of my messages that cybersecurity is really everyone's business. You cannot outsource cybersecurity management to a team or a function and expect miracles to happen. While you do count on their expertise, and it's only right to do so, everyone has to do their part. So creating and sustaining a VR-in-it-together culture with the tone being set at the top by the CEO, that is really the best that an organization can do, in my humble opinion. And I'm hearing that in your statements, in your discussion of how your organization approaches cybersecurity preparedness. Finally, coming to the last section of our discussion, in a book that I recently authored titled Cybersecurity Readiness, a Holistic and High-Performance Approach, I presented the Commitment Preparedness Discipline Framework. This framework is associated with 17 cybersecurity readiness success factors. And I'd like to believe that this governance framework is holistic because it not only covers the technical controls that are enumerated and shared by the very established frameworks such as NIST, ISO 27000, and others, but it also speaks to the non-technical controls such as top management commitment, 
creating a we are in it together culture, empowering the CISO function, cross-functional participation, and many other governance and leadership success factors. I'd love to hear your reaction to some of the CPD framework success factors. For instance, how does an organization create and sustain a we are in it together culture? What are some key elements of a best practice to do that? I think it's very important all parts of the company sees decisions around security as true business decisions, not decisions made in a hole in a dark room someplace in the back of the company. And so very early when I came to Aflac in a practice I've used at my other companies too, is I formed a, at first it was kind of an advisory council. It turned into a governance council and it's it's the, the security oversight committee concept. So as I was working with my my different peers and, and coming on board, I asked them to be a part of forming up this security group, right? Because when you when you think about the company and the other organizations, how interdependent we all are on each other, our HR function, we look at HR to communicate security policy through the employee handbook type structure, right? So incorporating our security principles into the fabric of the company, train, our onboard training, our each year at our company, we, we reaffirm our commitment to the company and one another in following the principles outlined in the employee handbook, right? And that touches our culture, our ethics, how we're going to conduct, how we're going to talk to one another. So HR was a critical partner very early on. And, and still is. So they're, they're a member of our oversight committee. The legal function, the compliance function, our privacy function, which is under legal. So the business leaders, most of our activity from a sales point of view is conducted by independent agents. So we had to have conversations with them. And again, they're independent agents. They're, they're not employees. We, but we have to partner with them as well because they're on the very tip of the spear of protecting our customers. So we have representatives on that on our oversight committee. We we have, and, and when I say the oversight committee, these are the SVPs and, and EVPs of the company, so to speak, that, that share the table and have come on as a partner because it's very important from day one to communicate, look, I'm, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do my best to protect the company through my technical controls and through the, these things. But at the end of the day, we all have to be committed together and we're going to fail. It's very good that at the EVP level, at the very business unit, the in fact, our deputy president for Aflac US has been a great partner. They they know the ramifications of having a qualified SOC too. <laughs> and, and so they want to make sure that because of the way we sell our product through other, to businesses often who buy the product for their employees, they, they rely on the SOC 2 structure to assess our security. So they see that as business enabling. They don't see security as a burden. They see it as business enabling. So we are in it together, and and our sales teams know. One of the best 
methods of selling or I guess tools in selling is the Aflac reputation. And they know that that reputation get, can get tarnished. There's there's such a high degree of trust in Aflac as, as a provider, as a partner, that if, if we have an event, it could tarnish that reputation. And, and so they're, they're definitely bought in. We have, and we do campaigns. We do things to keep awareness in the public, right? For compliance reasons, every company has to do their annual awareness training. But if, if you're relying on that for true awareness, that's that's not getting it. It, it just doesn't. I mean, I you can go to anyone and, and ask them two weeks after they took hold the awareness training key points, and they're not going to remember it. But if you have a methodology of integration and embedding yourself into the business and, and the business processes, then they remember that. And, and in fact, we we do fun things. One, one thing that we do is three or four times a year, we actually host a shred day so people can bring their personal information that gets piled up in the corner someplace and bring it to the shred. They can bring their, their computer disks. They can bring hard drives. We, we sponsor that and, and we use that opportunity as people bringing things to just reinforce the principles of good sound security. We, we do other kind of fun events during, during the year to, to, to try to help the employees. We also have what we call cyber ambassadors. And these are volunteers implanted in the business that have committed to take extra training so that they can, within their business, look for opportunities to reinforce the importance of security. So if, if you got kind of the tops down and the bottoms up, you, I think you get it a real, we're all in it together. And again, I cannot, I cannot under or overemphasize the, the effect that the tone at the top has. When our C talks security to our officer and directors groups, when probably once, once a year, once every couple of years, the CEO will put a, a message out particular to the importance of protecting our customers' information. Our president, my boss, he, again, when he goes out talking, he gets it. He understands it. He understands the impact it could have on our company. And so we get that support. And, and because we get that support at his level, all of his reports, direct reports, embrace it as well. So it, it's, it's been a very positive experience getting, getting this culture. That's fantastic. So encouraging to hear. In fact, I also want to take this opportunity to share with listeners and you, Tim, unless you've had a chance to read my book, something I talk about in the context of We Are In It Together culture I talk about building emotional capital by creating a work environment where A, employees feel valued, B, develop a sense of belonging and pride, C, are having fun, and D, not necessarily in this order, but in any order, perceive leadership to be genuine and authentic. And what you just shared with me by way of practices You seem to be doing all of this, and that's so, so good to hear. In fact, uh, Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines, who was instrumental in establishing a very happy and motivated culture, that culture was founded on three core values, humor, altruism, and love. As this might sound a little abstract and mushy-mushy, but in reality, I was just speaking with another group before this discussion, and they were talking about how important is empathy 
when it comes to cybersecurity governance. And I'm sure you will agree that it's a, it plays a huge role because unless you're in, empathetic to people making mistakes, even though they use their good judgment, they train sincerely, but they can make mistakes. But as long as they're owning up to it and enabling organizations react quickly to the consequences of their mistakes, instead of punishing them, be encouraging, maybe celebrate their candor and honesty. It is, yeah. being, it is being done by some companies. So I'll let you speak to that as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with those fundamental principles, not only security, but in leadership, in life. I mean, mm-hmm. when employees enjoy coming to work or enjoy their workplace because of empathy, because of humor, because we care, obviously they're going to do a better job. They're going to feel a sense of ownership to that company. It's it's not kind of the working in the coal mine attitude. It's I want to be there. I want to be there. And because I want to be there, I want to protect it. The employees of AFLAC, we've got incredible tenure, which is celebrated every year in an employee appreciation week, which is just an unbelievable week of telling our employees we we love them. And now you got to do it 365. You can't just do it in one week. But a lot of companies say they value their employees, but it's just words, right? You've got to show you value them. I read a book many years ago called Love Them or Lose Them. (laughs) And it was the whole principle about letting employees know how much you appreciate them and care for them and care for their personal aspects, not just their productivity in the company, but seeing them. So we carry those, those principles into our cybersecurity information security program. Yes, people will make mistakes. We have, in some cases, rewarded the coming forward. And, and we do that in different cases. We recently introduced, I think, a symbol of that through we, we developed a global security challenge coin, which we did it for our core global security group, our cyber ambassadors. But we also use the coin to recognize someone that has gone the extra mile. And we've awarded a couple of those coins. They're not given out willy-nilly. They're, they're, they're earned. But we recognize people doing the right things. We recognize that if you, if you look at statistics every year, one of the biggest, quote, insiders is employee mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Posting something unsecure to a website, failure to ship sensitive information in, in accordance with a standard and losing control of it. Those, those kinds of things, the, the old laptop falling off the back of a truck, those kinds of things account for many, many of the reportable incidents every year. So how do you build a culture where people are paying attention to that? And I think catching them doing the right thing is one of those those methods to build that culture. But again, I, I've experienced firsthand the benefits of treating our employees well and caring for them and, and reinforcing that. Fantastic. We can end on that note, unless you have any final thoughts, Tim. This was great. Now, Dave, I, I appreciate this opportunity to share my thoughts and, and to foster that servant leadership principles that you've espoused in your book and and how they're proven over and over again. So thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, sir. A special thanks to Tim Callahan for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, 
subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.